0: Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, episode 275, The Fall of Singapore. Last time at 8.15 a.m. on the last day of the first month of the new year, the last of the British-led troops crossed over the causeway onto Singapore Island. There was no panic, and no one ran. If anything, it was a well-executed retreat... But a retreat nonetheless. This was all that was left of the Allied territory of the Malayan campaign. For the British to drag this out, victory on any scale seemed impossible at this point. What was needed was a steady stream of men, material, and planes coming to Singapore. Yet that was hardly a simple affair, as the enemy was coming to control more and more of the skies and sea lanes around the lone British holdout. As for the incoming airpower, their focus had been on covering the convoys en route, and those recently arrived. Still, some nighttime raids were attempted on Japanese-controlled airfields, such as at Kuala Lumpur and Kwantan on the east coast. Joining the British bombers were Dutch Glen Martin bombers and American B-24s, operating out of Java. But they inflicted little damage, certainly not enough, to hold up what was coming next. The Japanese attempt to cross the Johor Strait. Making an almost impossible job even harder, reinforcement fighters and bombers had to come from India. But as the Japanese were getting squared away in Thailand, to the north, the would-be addition to the Singapore air defense had to fly through this gauntlet now. In most cases, fewer than half survived the journey, and they were now without their ground crew support, which kept them operational. Even worse, by mid-December, with the Japanese setting up an airfield in southern Burma, even this route was now closed. After this, all fighter planes, due to their limited range, would have to come by ship. Fifty-one hurricanes arrived on January 13th, and two weeks later, another 48 came from the carrier indomitable. But would it be enough? That answer came quickly enough. In mid-January, the Allies tried to use this injection of new fighters to retake the skies over Singapore and southern Malaya. But it was not to be. Between the Japanese pilots' combat experience and superior numbers... They remained masters of the third dimension. So, starting in the second half of January, the Japanese air arm focused on Singapore, specifically the naval base, port, and airfields. Daily, some 27 bombers covered by escorts would fly over and seek out targets. As there was nowhere else to run, the Allied pilots went up each time to attempt to stymie these attacks. But each time, the Allies lost more planes and pilots, which the reinforcements could not make good. So, as January dwindled away, so too did Percival's air shield. The only good news that came from this bloodletting was that these air battles kept the attackers' attention on the island and not the incoming convoys of reinforcements. Also, as the Allies went up each day, only to have fewer of them return to land, the Japanese did not feel that they truly controlled the skies, at least not enough to launch their ground assault. Hence, the late January crossing was cancelled. For now. Now that the Japanese controlled the Malayan mainland, the Allies were limited to four airfields on Singapore, which only caused a slowdown in trying to respond to any Japanese air patrols. So, additional airfields were used in southern Sumatra, due south of Singapore. By January 28, the Allies' remaining bombers were operating from Sumatra to give the fighters on Singapore more room, thus speeding up their response times. The problem was, three of the island's four airfields, Tengah, Simbawang, and Selatar, were on the northern part of the island, and hence would be in range of the enemy's artillery, whence they consolidated Johor and moved their guns down there. The fourth airstrip at Calong was on the southern coast, and hence safe for the moment. The British wanted to build additional airfields on the island, but did not have the manpower to guard them should the enemy launch an airborne attack. With the situation thus, it was decided to move all planes except for eight Hurricanes and eight Brewster Buffalo fighters, to southern Sumatra. Of course, now their response time in protecting the frontline troops in northern Singapore had just been lengthened, which made those troops feel even more exposed. By the end of January, the best the Allies' air arm could do was launch night attacks against the enemy's preparations to cross the Johor Strait, As it was at night, these 20 Hudsons and 15 Blemons accomplished little. In response, the Japanese kept up their daily bombing of Singapore's dock area, and not only were they attacking in daylight, but went mostly unchallenged, as the Allies had little in the way of a coordinated warning system. Thus, the defending fighters did not have enough time to get up and to the needed altitude, It would not be long until the Japanese, in thinking of other targets like Sumatra and Java, began flying over Singapore to hit those future targets of conquests. It must be remembered that the British had believed that any attack on Singapore would come from the south, at its naval base, and thus from the sea. As for the defense of the north, that had been the job of the Indians and Australians. So the defenses on the northern part of the island were minimal, certainly no fortifications. And though surveys had been done to create lines of defense on the western and eastern sides, little to no work had been accomplished. On the western side, there was the Jurong line, but it existed more on paper than in reality. As for defending the Allies' last holdout, here is what GOC Malaya Percival had to work with. Some 80,000 troops, though by the beginning of February, morale was low. Many were undertrained, and few were fully equipped. Of the 38 battalions on the island, only 13 were British, and two brigades of these were at full strength only because they had seen no fighting thus far. All other British units were under strength. The six Australian battalions were at full strength, but only because recently arrived and barely trained replacements had been thrown in. There were two melee battalions, but Percival honestly had no idea how they would do, as well as three local volunteer battalions, so they were given guard duties. Looking at his maps... Geosimalaya General Percival believed that if he was to invade the island, he would attack the northeast part of the strait, so that's what the Japanese were probably going to do. Then again, because they controlled the sea lanes, there might be an amphibious assault. Then again, there could be an airborne invasion. so Percival believed that he had to defend all seventy miles of coastline. There was simply no other way to give his command the best chance of surviving. He had also decided it was best, though far from perfect, to try to stop the Japanese from crossing over, versus letting them land and then try to push them back into the water. He did not have enough experienced troops for this kind of maneuver, nor did the geography lend itself to this type of defense. The good news was that the defenders had an impressive number of artillery, some 226 guns of all caliber. These could be used with devastating effect when the Japanese tried to come ashore. On the other hand, a system was not in place to coordinate these guns against the enemy. Thus, the defense of the island, along with these guns, was divided up into three parts. The northeast central area, the supposed point of attack, would be protected by the 11th Indian Infantry Division and the British 18th Division, and they were given many of the available guns. The western section of the island would be held by the 8th Australian Infantry Division and the 44th Indian Infantry Brigade. The southern section, the least likely to Percival's thinking, would be shielded by Malay and volunteer troops. It must be noted that none of these sections' leaders thought this was a good idea. But orders were orders. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies' solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Dell Tech. As for the Japanese, they had reached the Strait of Johor on the last day of January, as the last Allied unit had marched over the causeway before it was destroyed. The way things stood, Yamashita's 5th and 18th Divisions were to the west of the causeway, with the Imperial Guards Division to its east. Setting himself up in the Sultan's Palace, built in 1866 near the causeway, Yamashita spied the enemy's dispositions and surmised that their best troops were to the northeast, and he was right, anticipating Percival. So, his main attack would be elsewhere. Yamashita would narrow his attack to the northwest corner of Singapore, in between the Kanji Reservoir to the north and the Murai Reservoir to the west. On the far right of the main attack, the 18th Division would go in, in two waves. The first would be of two regiments and a battalion, to be followed by two more battalions. For the left flank of the main attack, but still in the northwest corner, the 5th Division would attack with three regiments at first, then with another regiment in reserve. Also supporting the 5th would be the 1st Tank Regiment, as this was 16 Japanese battalions pushing hard against an area that was only 4.5 miles long. It was hard to imagine the Australians in that area holding them back. Then again, if the defenders were ready, then the massed invaders may end up tripping over mounds of their own dead. Like the Malayan campaign, speed was essential to the Japanese. And Yamashita knew that his overall force was facing 3-to-1 odds, but thus far, audacity had seen him through. Why change now? But to keep the other allied formations in place so the Australians would bear the brunt of this attack alone. On the eastern side of the entrance of the Northern Reservoir, the Imperial Guards would be sent in there. This attack would be of seven battalions, along with the 14th Tank Regiment. Facing them would be the 27th Australian Infantry Brigade. Whether the Imperial Guards controlled their area within a short time after the attack was irrelevant. They were a diversion. As such, they would only have 30 collapsible boats to get across the Johor Strait, though the other invasion points promised to send over their craft once they were done. As for the main attacking forces, the 18th Division would be carried over by 140 collapsible boats and 30 pontoons, while the 5th Division would have 30 collapsible boats, 30 small landing craft, 30 pontoons, and 7 heavy pontoons. Obviously, this was a limiting factor that Yamashita could have done without, but if everything went right during the first phase of the attack, it would be 13,000 of his men taking on only 3,000 Australian troops. As the attack was to commence between 10 p.m. and midnight on February 8th, Yamashita did not move the bulk of his forces to their jump off points until the day before. Before this, there had been feints and other moves to confuse the defenders, but the twenty second Australian infantry brigade did see their opponents arrive in mass, and they sent the information up the chain of command, but it was not getting there fast enough for Percival to overhaul his dispositions. No the Allies would fight where they stood. The width of the Johor Strait varies between 5,000 and 6,000 yards. The causeway's location was at its most narrow point. Singapore itself is 27 miles at its widest and 13 miles deep, and mostly flat. Like the peninsula to its north, much of the island is covered by jungle. But key to taking or holding the island were the several roads that led to Singapore City, in the south. Along with those, whoever controlled the three water reservoirs in the center of the island, controlled Singapore. As for where the Japanese would be coming in force at the northwest corner, the Allies' dispositions were thus. At the top, say the 12 o'clock position, on the left bank of the Kanji Reservoir, sat Dal Force. Then to their left at the 11 o'clock position was the 220th Battalion of the 22nd Australian Brigade. To their left, the 10 o'clock position, was the 218th Battalion of the 22nd Australian Brigade. And to their left at the 9 o'clock position was the 219th Battalion of the 22nd Australian Brigade. It must be remembered that, again, though they were at full strength, it was only because mostly untrained men had recently been thrown into their ranks. To the right or east of the Kanji Reservoir's entrance to the north was stationed the two battalions of the 27th Australian Brigade with the 28th Indian Brigade. They would be attempting to hold back the Imperial Guards Division. Further inland, behind all these coastal defense forces, was a mixture of other Australian and Indian brigades. As the sun rose on February 8th, the day of the Japanese attack on Singapore, their air arm and artillery opened up on the various battalions of the 22nd Australian Brigade. This went on all day, but when the sun went down, it intensified even more. The Australians made their peace as best they could and waited. At 10.30 p.m. landing craft, were spotted coming across. The Australians didn't panic, but chose their targets and fired, and kept firing. But as they had no significant artillery supporting them in their section, the Japanese were able to, more than less, come ashore safely. And once ashore, their numbers dominated. Further, the Australians were too far apart for true mutual support. But this was required as there was so much coastline to cover, and the attackers used this to get in between the defenders, now able to approach the Australians from different sides. As it was, a successful defense of the northwest coast was impossible. By 3 a.m. February 9th, the most forward companies of all three Australian battalions were ordered to pull back, There was, previously selected, a place for them to go, but between the difficult terrain and having the enemy already in their midst, the going was dangerous. In fact, only half of the men of the 218th Battalion reached their new line, and those numbers were better than the other two battalions. The 22nd Australian Infantry Brigade had just been cut down significantly. Now that Percival knew where the main attack was, he ordered his only real reserve, the 12th Indian Infantry Brigade, to help the bloodied Australians. Still, it would take time for the Indians to get there. Hence, the Japanese spent February 9th pushing further inland. As the sun went down on February 9th, Yamashita was pleased as the first day's goals had been met. The enemy was pushed off the coast, of the northwest corner. Now, more of his men could come ashore safely, and during the day of February 9th, 10,000 more troops were sent over. With phase one completed, Yamashita knew the enemy would commit their reserves to the beleaguered northwest corner. So, during the 9th, he had the artillery with the Imperial Guards Division hit the 27th Australian Infantry Brigade, who were just to the right of the Kanji Reservoir. Then, at 1030 that night, the Imperial Guards began to cross over. Yet the 27th Australian Infantry Brigade did a better job than their comrades of the northwest corner in terms of their opening defensive move. As the Japanese were coming over, the Australians leveled their machine guns at the approaching crafts and opened up. Many guards fell into the water or arrived on land dead. In fact, it got so bad, General Nishimura of the Imperial Guards asked Yamashita to call off this attack. But Yamashita said no, believing it was only a matter of time before the enemy retreated, as had happened the day before. And this was true enough. Once the 27th Australian was pushed back a few hundred yards, their concentrated fire began to dissipate. At 4 a.m. on February 10th, the commander of the 27th Australian Infantry Brigade ordered a retreat. This allowed the attackers to bring over more men in relative safety. Getting back to the 22nd Australian Brigade of the northwest corner, they were ordered to hold out in their current position near Boulim, about three miles from the coast. Then, on February 10th, the Australians were told to fall back, to the Jurong Line, which started at the southern end of the Kanji Reservoir and ran south, and placed themselves in between the 12th and 44th Indian Brigades. Yet it's doubtful that this command came for Percival, as his Malaya command was unable to get orders to the front lines. Thus, the Allies were fighting piecemeal. And in this confusion, orders were given and complied with to pull back, that had not originated from the top. The northern section of this new line, held by the 12th Indian Brigade, pulled back, though not by Percival's request, which allowed the ever-winding Imperial Guards to come inland and get in behind other defenders. Then the southern section of the line, which ran north to south, was abandoned, as the 15th and 44th Indian Brigades believed They were ordered to pull back to the Jurong Road to cover that. This was not the case. Hence, the Jurong line, existing mostly on paper, could have been more than what it was had the defenders stuck to it. But it was lost, and the Japanese just kept pushing. Yamashita must have sensed the confusion of his enemy, because he ordered all of his units forward. The 5th Division was told to hold the Tengah airfield near the abandoned Jurong line in the north, while the 18th Division was ordered to move south along the Jurong road. Meanwhile, the Imperial Guards Division, the last of their men were still crossing over, was ordered due south, which would not only cut the defenders' coastal line in half, they were to meet up with the 18th Division just outside Singapore City. Once that was taken, the battle was over. Sensing this, Percival, under pressure from General Archibald Wavell, Commander-in-Chief of ABDICOM, the American-British-Dutch-Australian Command, ordered a three-battalion strong force together to retake the Gerong line. But communications being what they were, only two of the four brigades to be involved reported for duty. The counterattack State Farm is there. Now the defense of Singapore began to unravel at an even quicker pace. The 5th Division, which had started out as the left flank of the northwest corner attack, who now had tank support, pushed on from the Tenga airfield and started traveling down the Cho Chu Khan Road. The 12th Indian Brigade and the Australian Battalion tried to stop them, but the attackers' tanks helped them reach the main road. Soon they, too, were on their way to Singapore City. By midnight of February 10th, they were more than 80% towards the south coast, but still to the west of Singapore City. But then Yamashita had his own problem, not that it was unexpected. Though great warriors, the Japanese would find that logistics was not their strong suit. Already running low on food, Yamashita was now told his troops were low on ammunition. Their advances began to slow down, which could have given the Allies time to react and retake the initiative. But with so many enemy troops on the island, and with tank support and still controlling the skies, it was not enough to change the overall equation. Still, Percival wanted another counterattack this time to keep at least one of the reservoirs in the center of the island in Allied hands. But again, due to piecemeal orders which caused pullbacks, which left nearby units with exposed flanks, nothing came of this either, as the Japanese were able to push back this latest effort. By the evening of February 11th, Yamashita, still outmanned and now having food and ammunition issues, tried to bluff Percival. He sent a message telling the British leader to give up this meaningless and desperate resistance. Though it's not sure exactly what Percival knew, like the 22nd Brigade was down to a few hundred men, morale was lower than at any time, and the water reservoirs were all but out of Allied hands. Still, Wavell, per Churchill, told Percival to fight to the end. Percival would go about this, continuing the war, by shrinking his lines of defense. During the night of February 12th, the Allied forces, mostly men from the British 18th Division and Changi, the eastern side of the island, were pulled back and to the south to help create a perimeter around Singapore City. Yamashita took advantage of this by securing the northeast corner of the island without firing a shot. Then he told his men to march south until they made contact with the defenders' newest defensive line, just above Singapore City. But as the Allied right flank had fallen back, the center part of the defensive line, think due north of Singapore City, was pushed back as well. The 55th Brigade of the British 18th Division was forced to give up the last water supply the Allies had. As for the defensive line to the west of the city, the Allies still controlled an area beyond Percival's line that was closer to the city. This outer line to the west was manned by, in a semicircle from north to south, the 12th Indian Brigade, the 22nd Australian Brigade, the 44th Indian Brigade, and, closest to the coast, the 1st Malaya Brigade, which had not yet seen combat and sensing a weak link here at 2 p.m. on February 13th, the Japanese 18th Division attacked the 1st Malaya Brigade and the two brigades next to them to keep them pinned down. This worked as the western line was forced back to Buena Vista, about halfway between where they currently were and the defensive line closer to Singapore City. Also on the 13th, The Japanese engineers were able to rebuild the causeway. Now tanks and troops were coming over at a faster rate. This was reported to Percival and his senior officers, specifically Lieutenant General Sir Lewis Heath of the Indian Third Corps and Major General Gordon Bennett of the Eighth Australian Division. They recommended surrendering, but the commander refused. However, surreptitiously, He did ask Wavell for the ability to decide for himself when to capitulate, but General Wavell, per Churchill, said no. The next day, February 14th, the Japanese 18th Division again came at the western part of the Defenders' Line. Again, the Malayan Brigade was focused on. In fact, Company C of the 1st Malay, commanded by 2nd Lieutenant Adam bin Sadi, who were defending... Bukit Chandu, in the late morning, successfully fended off an enemy attack, who tried to be clever by dressing up as Sikhs. This did not work, and the Japanese troops went down. Hard. But the enemy was back two hours later, and this time did not bother with any sleight of hand. In fact, it was 13,000 attackers versus the surviving 42 men of the company. The Malayans were slaughtered to a man, which allowed the Japanese to reach Alexandra Barrack's hospital. As it was a medical facility, a British lieutenant came out, carrying a white flag, and approached the Japanese. He was soon bayoneted to death. Within 24 hours, all but a few of the patients and staff, about 323 people, were dead, murdered. One survivor, Private Arthur Haynes of the Wiltshire Regiment, would write of the account. With the hospital taken, the Japanese 18th Division was now in proximity to Percival's Wall around Singapore City. The situation was hopeless, and everyone knew it. Morale dropped to its lowest level, and some of the defending troops began to desert During this time, and for the last few days, demolitions were carried out. The naval base had already been wrecked, as had many rubber and tin melting factories. The broadcasting station was now gutted, and all treasury notes were burned. The previous day, or rather night, the last of the ships were ordered to depart for Java and Sumatra. By February 14th, the Japanese 18th Division was only 3,000 yards from the outskirts of the western side of the city. To the north, the 5th Division, supported by tanks, was fighting in the residential area in the outskirts of the city. Only on the eastern side had the enemy been checked. But adding insult to injury, Percival was informed that the city's water supply was precarious. There was, by now, some one million people crowded into Singapore City. Throughout the 14th, the Japanese continued shelling and bombing the city, causing ever-mounting civilian casualties that had to be dealt with. The next day, February 15th, at 9.30 a.m., Percival held another meeting. First, they were told that the water would run out in 24 hours. The wounded were only mounting, while supplies to deal with them were dwindling. For Percival, it was simple. Either they launch a counterattack to gain the area around the closest reservoir, though they were short on heavier ammunition and fuel, or surrender. It was then Wavell radioed and gave Percival latitude to surrender, if resistance was impossible. Percival decided it was not. Thus, on February 15th at 5.15 p.m., Percival and his chief of staff asked for, received, and followed Japanese instructions. They went to the Ford factory at Bukit Timah, just outside the city limits to the west, to meet the enemy face to face. Yamashita wasted no time and demanded an unconditional surrender. Percival demurred, hoping for more concessions. The Japanese general replied by threatening to renew his attacks. After 55 minutes of this, Percival agreed. The document making this official was signed at 6.10 p.m., becoming effective at 8.30 that night. The campaign to take Malaya and Singapore had lasted for 70 days. As Singapore the Gibraltar of the East, was to hold out indefinitely to be a ready port for when the mighty British Navy returned in force. It was the greatest military defeat in British history. Further, ABDICOM, or the American-British-Dutch-Australian Command, headed by General Sir Archibald Wavell, which was to provide A barrier against the Japanese and run through the Malayan Peninsula, Singapore, and the southernmost islands of the Dutch East Indies was disbanded on February 25th, when Wavell resigned. It had just been created the previous month, on January 7th. With the Eastern Command structure in tatters, General Douglas MacArthur was ordered to proceed to Australia he would be made supreme allied commander southwest pacific area which included australia and new guinea to the east of macarthur that would be under the pacific theater of operations led by commander in chief admiral chester nimitz with the battle over the japanese now had for their war effort besides the oil of the dutch east indies 40% of the world's rubber 60% of its ten. This had cost them 9,824 casualties. For their pains, the Allies lost 138,708 soldiers, of which 130,000 of those were now POWs of the Japanese Empire. Indeed, talk began of the Invincible Imperial Japanese Army. For the Allies, their casualties broke down this way. 38,496 British, sixty-seven three hundred forty Indian, and 18,490 Australian, and 14,382 local troops. More besides, the Japanese now had a naval base, which had been only partially destroyed, and a cache of weapons and equipment, courtesy of the British. For the next four years, the inhabitants of Malaya and Singapore would suffer, grievously. First, the Chinese inhabitants were gathered up, and the men were questioned about their anti-Japanese feelings. If this was found to be true, they were taken outside of whatever city they were in and killed. No number of dead can be trusted, but it seems to be at least 5,000. As for the Allied soldiers, many were taken to the island's Changi prison on the eastern half, and many of them died over the next three and a half years from ill treatment. Others were shipped out to be used as labor, but due to their treatment on those ships, and once they arrived at their destination, many of them died as well before the war was over. From the moment of the surrender until at least 1992... The finger-pointing as to who was to blame for this spectacular defeat has never stopped. The defenders had more men, but in the end, the conduct of that defense, in terms of planning and equipment, really the lack of equipment, as there had not been a single tank on the island, has to take top billing for explaining the defeat. And one of those crowing the loudest that it was the fault of the British was Major General Gordon Bennett. After the surrender, he handed over his command of the 8th Division to a brigadier and, gathering up some of his staff, snuck away, grabbed a small boat, and made for Australia. Once there, Bennett blamed Percival and the Indian troops. But honestly, there were so many moments of failure in those 70 days of fighting, no one person or event can carry the full load of blame. Ironically, Adolf Hitler was less than excited about the fall of Singapore. For him, with his worldview, it was a setback for the white race to have been beaten so quickly by Asians, even though they were his allies. But if anyone was crushed, it was Churchill. Months later, while drying himself after a bath, he paused and said to himself, "'I cannot get over Singapore.'" For it had been another quick, stunning defeat. How was the British Empire to survive this war? But before that question could be answered, there would be still more defeats to face. Epilogue G.O.C. Malaya Percival was held in the Changi Prison, and though he didn't talk much at first, He soon reconstituted his Malayan command to give his fellow prisoners something to do. Then he was moved in August of '42 and first taken to Formosa, then Manchuria, to a camp about 100 miles northeast of Mukden. There, with the American General Jonathan Wainwright himself captured in the Philippines, they stayed until an OSS team got them out near the end of the war. Both of these former POW generals stood behind General Douglas MacArthur when he confirmed the terms of the Japanese surrender aboard USS Missouri and Tokyo Bay. MacArthur gave Percival one of the pens he used to sign the document. Then Percival and Wainwright went to the Philippines to watch the Japanese army there surrender, and in command of that force, was General Yamashita, though this time Percival refused to shake the man's hand due to his treatment of Allied personnel. But the quick defeat of Singapore, of which there were many during this time, would stick with Percival. Going back to the UK in September of '45, he wrote of his experiences, but the government altered his writings and then did not even publish them until 1948. He retired from the Army in 1946 with the honorary rank of Lieutenant General, but only with the pension of a Major General. Percival, as did many officers, kept in contact with local regiments and other military units. But he was not treated as a hero after the war like so many others. His 1949 memoir, The War in Malaya, did not help as it was somehow restrained and placed blame on London at the same time. But he was not wrong. His command, again, did not have one single tank. They and other equipment and trained men always seemed to be going somewhere else. Probably because of his memoir, Percival was not awarded a knighthood. Arthur Ernest Percival died, age 78, On January 31st, 1966. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So as this is the last recording of 2019, oh my God, I've been doing this since the summer of 2010. I just wanted to take a moment and say thank you to everyone who listens and who maybe has recently joined on. Listening, if you caught it by now, that's pretty amazing. So for me and the girls who want to get back to doing commercials, I think they're gonna maybe sue me uh, to get back their old jobs. We'll see. But we just wanted to say happy, happy new year. year. Thank that you, honey. That went really. That went really <laughs> well. So Kiki's at the age where she only accepts money now with gifts. <laughs> it's so not true. Any of y'all want to send? It's not guests. true. Okay, so. Happy yeah, there's Happy that. New Year. Thank you. I'll the money. Thank, Thank you. New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. I was going to keep saying it. <laughs> okay, so they're gone now. Um, things are back to normal. Whenever they're around, things are not normal. Um, I hope most of you noticed that um, Percival died on the anniversary of when his the last of his troops crossed over into Singapore. I'm sure it's just a coincidence, but... History has a lot of those. Anyway, so um, I hope you enjoyed that. We still have other um, conquests of the Japanese Empire to cover. And then we'll get to the, um, to the meeting in Washington, between Arcadia, between Churchill and FDR and all the other stuff that's going to go on in the Pacific and also as far as getting back to the war in Europe as well as North Africa. So again, I just wanted to take a moment to say thank you for everyone listening. Um, Thank you for putting up with the ads because this is now how I make my living. So thank you for your tolerance and patience. And I will see you as soon as I can with the next episode. For you members out there, um, I just released a day or two ago. Another episode with the uh, Totenkopf and the Polizei SS divisions. Um, How should I put this? Getting shellacked by one of Stalin's uh, initial counterattacks. So that's there on the website waiting for you as well. Um, So again, just thank you to everyone. And I will see you as soon as I can in the new year and the new decade.